Welcome to The Teaching Curve, a podcast exploring the pedagogy of global politics and international studies. Produced under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative of the International Studies Association and made available through ISA's Professional Resource Center. I'm Jamie Free, Associate Provost and Professor of Global Politics at Bridgewater College. Coming to you today from a disused conference room at the International Studies Association Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. This is our first live taped episode. The Teaching Curve presents conversations with thoughtful and innovative teachers of international studies. The goal is to celebrate and inspire pedagogical creativity by having scholars describe the choices they have made as they have responded to the challenges of balancing the many aspects of our profession to embody good teaching, finding ways to help others make sense of the complexities we as a discipline embrace. Today's conversation is with Dr. Andrew Shereko and Dr. Sybil Octay. Andrew is a Donald R. Beale Defense Fellow in the Defense Analysis Department at the Naval Postgraduate School. Sybil is an Associate Professor of Political Science and Global Studies and Director of the School of Politics and International Affairs at the University of Illinois Springfield in the United States. Andrew is the editor and Sybil a contributor to Pandemic Pedagogy, Teaching International Relations Amid COVID-19 published this year from Paul Grave Macmillan. Our conversation covers lessons from the adaptations we all had to make to respond to the disruptions of the COVID pandemic, how disciplinary organizations can help support their members in the face of such disruptions, and how we manage the demands of our profession to make the space to invest in being good teachers. So Andrew Sereko and Sibel Octe, welcome to the Teaching Curve podcast. This is the first one we're doing in person because we're all here at the International Studies Association Conference together in Nashville. And it's a very exciting thing. So I hope you get that electric spark is coming through the video when you're watching this. Um, so we're here because the two of you, um, Andrew is the editor and Sybil has the uh, chapter in the book, a new book, Pandemic Pedagogy, that's just out from Paul Grave Macmillan. And we're going to talk a little bit about what they learned through the process and what they have to share with us about that. Uh, but first, I want you guys to please tell us a little bit about where you are, what institutions you are. Um, as we know, the reason we can call ourselves teachers is because we have this mutually constitutive relationship with our students. So please talk about your experience with students and where you are right now in your institutions. Yeah, so I, I'm at the Naval Postgraduate School now. Uh, I'm a postdoctoral fellow there. Uh, so I actually don't have any teaching responsibilities this year. I will say uh, the year that, that uh, I spent pr previously at the University of Cincinnati, uh, I was a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Political Science there. I was teaching three courses per semester, uh, Intro to Comparative Politics, as well as several kind of IR and uh, national security related uh, upper level uh, electives. Um, and so I had a lot more sustained engagement with, with students there. Uh, we were doing all virtual classes uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, but uh, the, the kind of diversity of the students there and uh, the kind of enthusiasm that they showed despite the circumstances of the pandemic, that that's something that that's going to stick with me. Excellent. Sibyl. Yeah, my name is Sibel Oktay. I'm an associate professor of political science and uh, formerly chair, now director of the School of Politics and uh, International Affairs at the University of uh, Illinois at Springfield. My university is, can I guess, can be classified as a public master's level institution. 
so we have um, both online and on-ground degrees in this school uh, uh, for political science, both at the graduate and undergraduate levels. And so I've had plenty of online teaching experience prior to COVID, uh, which was, uh, which was, I think I, I consider that a strength as we had to pivot um, quickly and somewhat clumsily uh, during the pandemic. Um, my students are uh, mostly uh, 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 American uh, students. I, I do have some international students, some exchange students, but for the most part, um, uh, we're talking about uh, uh, students uh, from within, you know, either Illinois or um, um, or you know elsewhere in the U.S. I do have quite a bit of uh, students who are also stationed internationally. So, especially in our online degree programs, we have a lot of uh, uh, students who are serving in the military, and so they might be uh, posted in places like Erbil in, in in northern Iraq or Montenegro or other places. Uh, and so um, I have a, a, a diverse uh, student body in that sense. Um, so let's talk about the book first. What's the, uh, tell me more about what's the idea behind the book and, and uh, what the chapters are and how it kind of come, came together. Yeah, so uh, to, to put the book in the temporal context, I pitched this in March of 2020. So when... <laughs> it was clear that there was going to be at least some kind of short-term disruption uh, to higher education from COVID-19, but the medium, long-term impacts were, were still a bit unclear. So it started off being pitched a bit more as kind of teaching in times of disruption, mm -hmm. a, a bit broader because we didn't know how long or how bad COVID would be necessarily. Uh, it really came uh, eventually to focus in on uh, COVID-19 and the, the process of teaching specifically during this pandemic. It was in March of 2021 that I ultimately received everyone's first draft. Mm. So we were very much writing in the thick of it, mm. uh, going through the first full academic year that would be impacted by COVID. Um, and so I think that that means there's a degree of humility to yeah. the book. I mean, mm. you're writing from a, a place of real uncertainty, too, to be sure. Um, but to kind of outline the book a bit, uh, it's divided into three different sections. Uh, the, the first one really focuses in on the ways in which we've adapted our, our courses to especially online and hybrid modes of instruction. The second section focuses in on the question of how do we care for students in crisis, sometimes intersecting crises. And then the, the third part of the book is a bit more forward looking and asks, how should we prepare for future mm. disruptions? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that we are caught a bit less off guard that the next time something like this happens and that we're more prepared to make a shift to short or long term online or hybrid mm -hmm. instruction. And it, it's that third section of the book that, that Sybil's chapter is in, so I, I should turn it over to her. Yes, so uh, so Andrew kindly invited me uh, to be a part of this volume, which I, of course, jumped at the idea. I come in towards the end of the book, and, and my chapter comes in toward the end of the book, and I, and I really enjoyed writing it because it comes from a place of experience, but also experience as a as an online teacher prior to COVID, as an online teacher during COVID, mm. um, but also as someone who, ha by that point, I was picking up some administrative duties. So, you know, I, I've been serving on the FBA uh, section. 
uh, I should do a plug for that. Sure. And uh, <laughs> uh, we just broke the 1,000 member mark. So we are the, uh, thank you. So that's, um, I'm pretty say, proud of that. Say just for everybody what FBA is. Oh, Foreign Policy Analysis. We're now the second largest section of the, we have always been, but now we're one of the two uh, sections that have uh, more than 1,000 members. So I'm I'm very proud of that. That's good. Uh, so, but you know, all of that experience, those experiences as as a department administrator and as you know, someone who serves to the section, uh, I was given, thanks to Andrew, this sort of free reign to think about, okay, how can we think more creatively about mm. the role of these associations and the roles of these, uh, you know, institutions and departments to make sure that next time, and you know, you hope this never happens, but it may not be a pandemic, it might be a power outage like the one we had in Texas, right? So um, these kinds of disruptions happen all the time. There's no way of stopping them. And, and how to make those disruptions less disruptive on our teaching and less stressful for our faculty and ultimately for our students. Mm. Uh, so in the chapter, and I can go, uh, you know, talk a little bit in more detail about the kinds of ex examples that I draw on to, mm -hmm. to make those uh, to, to to make those creative ideas, you know, um, uh, on on the on in the chapter, uh, but also, you know, what what we can do in the future and how we can bring in what I call, you know, institutional harnessing institutional support and association support. Mm -hmm. uh, for the next disruption. So yeah, tell us one thing that you put in there that you think that the uh, associations can do that would get out information that would help people in such disruptions. Right. Mm. With ISA, ISA already has a number of initiatives in place, right? So we, we collect syllabi from, uh, uh, from members. I know FPA Foreign Policy Analysis has its own syllabi uh, initiative and, and we try to collect and, and we try to um, present them online on our website. Um, so those are like the very little sort of tiny uh, baby steps of um, providing these kinds of resources for folks who may never have taught comparative foreign policy mm -hmm. or US foreign policy or foreign policy analysis and they want some, uh, they want to start somewhere and so the section and ISA's repository is a great way to do that. Yeah. Uh, journals, one of the things that I was talking about in the chapter was about how we can think about modules for our online courses and you know video lectures and things like that as opposed to sitting in front of your camera and and you know <laughs> sort of cracking out the next 90 minutes lecture you can think of them as modules, mm. short bursts of videos and you can you can play with them right so you can you can use that module for another lecture or if you're talking if, if if some other professor is teaching on that particular topic they can borrow your module and and present that that creates a, a nice cross pollination for students mm. they get to know me talking about foreign policy in an international law class and so on and so forth so um fp uh, isa's journals have some of that uh, functionality, I, maybe I could call it that, already in place uh, in the form of like abstract videos. So whenever, I don't know for like whether it's done for all the articles that are being published or just some of them. Uh, I, I'm assuming that it's just a few, but you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't do more of that. Mm -hmm. um, the authors, they, uh, they record a five minute blurb on, you know, what the project is about. And it's, 
you know, it's, it's a little more interactive than reading the abstract. And if you want to put, you know, faces on the papers that you're reading, it's, yeah. a, it's a good way to do it. Right. And so those things can be brought into the lectures, into, into our courses. And, and our content, our course uh, modules can be brought to the IS, to, you know, ISA uh, repositories. And so I think there's a lot of creative ways in which we can make things happen. It just requires a lot, a lot more support and organization. For a junior career scholar, uh, early career scholar, for someone like myself, uh, I was teaching five new preps at the University of Cincinnati. Mm. Syllabus repositories <laughs> were a lifesaver mm. for me and, and kind of get, getting a, a kind of multiple points of reference for how other people were teaching uh, these topics, some of which I had more familiarity with, some of which I didn't know always. Fair enough. Uh, so so the, I uh, really do want to underscore that. You both have demonstrated both through the, the book and, and your, your lives that teaching is an investment. It's not just something that you, um, some people are born to do and therefore they don't have to work at it at all. Um, everybody has to work at their teaching. And, and so how did you, how do you decide how to invest energy in teaching balancing that with the other responsibilities that go along with being a faculty member. Well, uh, like Sybil, uh, I started teaching my, my own courses while I was still a PhD candidate at Georgetown. Uh, my first course as uh, instructor of record was the, the summer of 2019. It was mm -hmm. a similar kind of compressed course. Mm -hmm. uh, it was four days a, a week for, I, I think, five, five weeks for us. Um, and so I, I taught introduction to IR at Georgetown in that format in 2019, 2020, mm. 2021 again. In all of those courses at Georgetown, right, I, I was very conscious of the need to finish my dissertation, mm -hmm. do uh, other research as well. Um, I, I also I, I have a personal life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have a wife with whom I would like to spend some time. Indeed. I don't have any more serious caregiving responsibilities that I know can, can, can be a, a heavy burden for some. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think in terms of kind of how to allocate time to, to those different things, uh, especially as a PhD candidate, uh, but even then as a visiting assistant professor at Cincinnati, uh, I, I think the main thing for me was to be very careful in setting boundaries mm -hmm. and, and to really block off set amounts of time mm -hmm. for teaching related work and that, that's all, all the stuff related to teaching so both giving the lectures or hosting the discussions um, uh, grading papers or essays uh, meeting with students in office hours uh, preparing new slides and revisiting old slides mm -hmm. uh, all that stuff is stuff that would go into a teaching block for a single day for me usually so I would try to keep office hours typically around the, the same time as my regular class, either before or after. Uh, and I would uh, allocate other time before or after that block for, for uh, the, the rest of the, those kind of teaching related activities. Um, so I, I would often spend a, a good amount of time on those things, especially at Cincinnati teaching mm -hmm. three courses a, a, per semester, that that was you know, my sole contractual responsibility then was mm -hmm. teaching and right. so I think uh, it was the right thing to do to mm -hmm. be spending a good amount of time there on my teaching making sure that my students were feeling supported in that environment and get getting their money's worth mm -hmm. um, 
but hey, I think it really did come down to me in all those settings to a matter of setting boundaries, saying I'm not going to respond to emails between 9 p.m. and yeah. 9 a.m. or, mm -hmm. or something along those lines. Uh, yes, I, I'll try to get back to students promptly, but uh, there, there are certain times when I'm not going to be doing course-related things. Mm. That, that that was really important for me. Mm. So, because you have, in addition to teaching and research stuff, but you've got administrative duties as well. <laughs> yes. How do you decide to, to not just divvy up that time, but, but how to invest in your teaching so that you continue to grow in that respect? Right. I, I wish I had a great answer to that, but I don't. Um, so uh, let me start with the easier part where I, I used to do what Andrew used to do, right? And uh, one of my colleagues, which uh, at, uh, at UIS in, in my department, he told me one time, I think it was my very first semester at UIS, uh, and, and he said, teaching is like water. It will fill up uh. whichever container you give it uh, and, and, and allocate it to. And so if, if you bring a, a bathtub, it's going to fill the bathtub. If you bring a small glass, it's going to fill up a small glass. And so you have to decide how big a container you want. And, and that's going to, because yeah, otherwise it can take your entire day. Mm. And that is so true because the first semester, and, and like Andrew said, I mean, you're, you, I had a 3-3 load starting at UIS and, and I have all these new preps that I need to work on. And so how do you do that without, uh, first of all, without going crazy, but at the same time, you know, ma while maintaining a nice, you know, work-life balance while working on your scholarship mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and just generally be a, a sane, <laughs> normal person along the way. Uh, so what I, try to do was uh, spend three days of the week on teaching related things. So everything from doing the readings, grading, office hours, creating lectures, delivering the lectures. And, and then generally for the longest time, I had um, Thursdays and Fridays um, sort of blocked out and, and I would just go to a coffee shop and, and write and read and, and work on my, uh, on my projects and, and scholarship. And, and so that worked out really fine. Uh, for a good amount of time, which I'm very grateful for. And then I became an administrator and then uh, everything went <laughs> sideways. Uh, so uh, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to give out a whole bunch of advice that I cannot follow. Um, <laughs> but, you know, on Twitter, people say, you know, I'm, I'm taking, I'm becoming chair next semester. What advice uh, you have for me? And I sort of crack my knuckles. <laughs> like, oh, well, do I have advice for you? <laughs> so uh, it's um, teaching in institutions like mine, especially where we're considered teacher scholars, as mm -hmm. opposed to, let's say, an R1 where, you know, you're judged primarily by your research output. We have to make sure that teaching is central. Mm -hmm. But given the kind of work that you're doing as an administrator, um, teaching becomes a primary, still a primary thing that you do, obviously. Um, but in terms of the amount of time you spend on it, mm -hmm. it starts to get eaten by all sorts of admin duties. And so it's imperative that you Again, like if it was three days and now that you have several course releases to get this, you know, administrative service, then you should still spend like a day um, that is 
nothing but your teaching and mm -hmm. and you still because you're still an instructor you're still a professor and you are still judged by how good a teacher you are how effective you are in the classroom and and um you're morally and contractually bound to that that mm. work uh, so that's what I try to do as much as I can. And, uh, and I generally spend my Mondays on, on my coursework. Uh, and then I put out fires for the rest of the week. <laughs> mm -hmm. Fair enough. So um, let me ask you a little bit more about how that manifests, how that investment in your teaching manifests in kind of a, a larger kind of philosophy of what you're trying to get into the course. So besides content, what is it that you're hoping your students take away from your courses? So for me, I, I think it's a uh, kind of pluralistic sensibility. Um, and here, uh, the, the work of Patrick Thaddeus Jatson has been especially influential for me. Uh, his, his book on the conduct of inquiry and international relations. Um, I, I think what I want to provide my students uh, in an in intro to IR class, uh, especially, but any course, is a sense that we don't need to come to the end of the course having declared a winner, mm. right? a, a, a single kind of theory or method that, that is the kind of one true way to truth in world politics. Uh, I really w want them to come away with an appreciation for the diversity of, of approaches that, that we can take to the many problems of, of world politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, so for me, I, I think I, I'm interested in two or three core goals um, that I try to build in all of my courses. And I tell them, like, first thing uh, in, in that first class, these are the things that I'm going to keep um, uh, emphasizing for the for the uh, rest of the semester and one of those is you know there's a systematic way of studying politics right it's especially in this sort of current moment where a lot of it is about he said she said mm -hmm. uh, and and a lot of people for good and bad reasons come to class with a lot of cynicism about politics and institutions and politicians and 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 institutions and so uh, so it's uh, it's important to say that, you know, besides all that noise or in the middle of that noise, there is a way in which we can think about how factors shape each other, mm. how they lead to certain types of outcomes, how there are frameworks that we can utilize to make sense of the chaos that we're living in. And, uh, and I think that's something that I would want to um, communicate throughout the courses, essentially every week of, of our content. The second thing is, and relatedly, is that the what you're learning in the classroom resonates with what's happening outside, mm -hmm. like as we speak, right? Yeah. And political science is a wonderful discipline because politics is everywhere, mm -hmm. right? It's 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 about how this place is organized. And so when they are reading something about Middle East politics or US foreign policy, they can turn on the news, they can you know, go online and read uh, newspapers and, and hopefully they will find out that some of the discussions that we had mm. in the classroom, they connect pretty nicely to what's happening on that day yeah. in here or elsewhere in the world. And so as long as they can make that connection, I can help them make that connection or give them the tools to be able to make those connections. Um, I think that's a, that's a day that I won. So. 
Well, and what's interesting about that, of course, is that that's about turning them into agents of their own understanding. Like right. you are teaching them to see those connections. It's not necessarily that they need a professor then from then on to be able to make those connections right. for them. You're giving them broader skills to be able to go and do that for themselves, which is, of course, a very important component of being a citizen of a democracy. Precisely. Yeah. Well, thank you to both for sharing your wisdom with us. Let's plug the book again. This is a, a new volume out from Paul Gray McMillan, and it's about what you can learn from disrupted classrooms and spaces and how people use their creativity as instructors and as, and as teachers to be able to make that stuff adapt into classrooms and make them more fully engaged for students. And those kinds of lessons are things that can go on despite disruptions. You can take them and, and adapt them to classes and courses, even if you're just in normal times, which we hope everyone will be getting back to and fully engaged in those from now on. But there's no guarantees. <laughs> so anyway, thank you very both. Uh, thank you both very much for coming and being part of this. Thanks for having us. Okay. Thanks very much. Teaching Curve Podcast is made available through the ISA Professional Resource Center through the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative. You can send feedback or suggestions for future interviews to teachingcurve at isonet.org or follow us on Twitter at teachingcurve. Thanks everybody for joining us again on the Teaching Curve, this time from a very special context. And remember, learn something every time you teach.